32 messages ago, we began the Gospel of John. Today we finish. In John chapter 20 and 21, we're going to be covering some key texts here as we wrap up uh, John's account of the life of Christ. And that's what this sermon is all about today. It is all about the life of Christ that has been transposed and given to those who are believers in Him, the life that we have. You see, because the past few weeks, you've noticed the ser- each sermon has begun with the end, arrest, the end, Pilate, the end, death. Today we talk about the beginning, which is life. This is what Jesus Christ came for. This is what the whole Gospel leads us to. This is what John ends with in chapter 20 when he says, I've written these things that you may have life, that you may believe in the Son of God. This is exciting stuff as we get to the end. And it's not Easter, but because we're Christians, we're going to use yet another Sunday to proclaim the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ. I can remember... um, one of the first great highlights of my life in pastoral ministry um, was in 1999. In uh, Ju- the beginning of July is when I began serving in pastoral ministry. Um, and by September of that year, I had been asked to um, fly to St. Louis with uh, my mentor, pastor, uh, to help him serve as a counselor at a Billy Graham crusade. And I didn't know what to expect because the one Billy Graham crusade that I did try and go to with Mindy was in Tampa a few years earlier and we got shut out, right? Like we showed up and it was so, it was seven nights of crusade and it was so jam-packed that Raymond James Stadium couldn't hold any more people. So you had to sit outside in a parking lot about what seemed like a half a mile back from a jumbotron screen in the parking lot to hear Dr. Graham preach. So I, in my mind, I was, I was never going to actually get to a Billy Graham crusade to see God move in such a way. Well, lo and behold, a couple years later, I'm um, listening to Dr. Graham preach, and I'm uh, down on the floor of uh, the stadium there in St. Louis where at the time the, the Rams played. Which, by the way, just a couple hours earlier, I was privileged to um, actually sort of meet Dr. Graham as he was driving in his golf cart around the back of the stadium, and, uh, and he waved and shook my hand as he passed by. But it was, um, uh, it was amazing to me because I don't know if you've ever been to a Billy Graham crusade. Show of hands. Anybody been to a Billy Graham crusade? Really? Just Ramona? Wow. Oh, and um, Rachel. Yeah, so if you've been, you know, kind of know how it works. Every, uh, every night of a Billy Graham, Graham crusade, uh, the, of course, the invitation is given. While the invitation is being given, it's the same song that's played every single time. Anybody know what that song is? Just As I Am. So uh, I've never been, so I'm standing down there on the floor waiting to counsel a few people, thinking, you know, hey, maybe I'll be useful here. I'm thinking of a church service, you know, some people are going to come forward. Holy cow. Just as I am, started playing, and from the very top rafters of the stadium, people began to just flood downstairs. I really felt like I was going to be overwhelmed by humanity. People just coming forward. And they were coming forward just craving to give their life to Christ. They wanted life in Christ. Standing there and just one person after another for an hour just counseling them there on the floor. Was, has to be one of the highlights of my life. I'll never forget it. And uh, it never, ever gets old to see somebody receive life in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, you may think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm never going to get, you know, be able to stand on the floor of a Billy Graham crusade and counsel the thousands of people that are coming forward. No, but you know what? Somewhere in your life, there's a neighbor or a coworker. And it's no different in God's eyes when that person comes forward and stands before you and they hear the Gospel and they surrender their life to Christ. I pray that it never gets old for us. This is what we exist for. We've been saved to make disciples for Christ. But as we get into John's Gospel here, it kind of begs the question, and this is what I want to draw out this morning. The resurrection gives us life, but what does that life look like? 
What kind of life is that that we have in Jesus Christ? And in the last two chapters of John's Gospel, we get a serious glimpse as to what this looks like. Let's read John chapter 20. Let's start there and we'll kick off in verse 1. We'll read the first ten verses as we start out here this morning. You know the story. We finished last week. They took this dead man, they stuck him in a tomb, and it was over, man. The Romans and the Jews, they thought they had won. Satan thought he had won. But now in verse 1 of 20, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, probably sometime between like 3 or 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Here's the first thing that we notice about new life in Christ, and it's this. When Christ's resurrection becomes real to somebody, you gain a new perspective. With new life comes new perspective. Every, the way you see the world, the way you operate, the decisions that you make, your understanding of life itself changes because you now understand new life in Christ. Peter and John run. This is always a hilarious account to me. For some reason, John needs to make sure to everybody. It's like you know, two teenage boys after they run somewhere. It doesn't matter that they got there. They just have to point out that they beat the other guy. This is what John says. He's too humble to say who he is, but he has no problem referring to the fact that this anonymous guy beat Peter to the tomb. So they run, and after the initial report that Jesus had been taken, and after looking in, were told that they believed, even though they didn't fully understand. John looks in... And he sees, and he sees that you know the, the the linen cloths are laid out in two separate places, and that the face cloth had been folded up neatly there. And he sees this, and and something begins to click in him. It says that he believes. Maybe he doesn't fully understand the resurrection at this point, but he believes that Jesus is not there. He believes that Jesus is not dead. But what did they see? All right, let's think about it. The perspective is beginning to change because when they look in the tomb, not only do they not see a body, but they see these cloths that are lying in very unique positions. A body, linen cloth here, a face, linen cloth there, folded up neatly. Who does this? The only way this happens is if Jesus left the tomb on his terms. Think about it. Remember last week we referred to this idea of the cross and how those people who, who like to try and convince us that Jesus didn't really die, one of the theories is the, called the swoon theory. It's the idea that because of blood loss, because of trauma, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just kind of passed out. He went into some sort of semi-coma. Even though they pierced his heart with a spear, I guess they still thought, well, he's still alive. So they throw him in a tomb. The swoon theory says that because Jesus was in the tomb and he wasn't dead, he's laying there in the cool of the tomb. The cool, damp air revives him. And then I guess in his revived state, after all the trauma and being in a semi-coma, all of a sudden he had the strength to roll the stone away himself and, and march out. And as he did this, he also had the forethought to fold like, like we would wish every one of our teenage children would do, fold their clothes neatly and leave them there as they exit the room. That, that's 
what people were trying to convince us of with the swoon theory. You just don't pierce a man in the heart and blood and water flows out and then convince me that he really just passed out. But then there's this idea also that, um, well, he did die, but um, his disciples stole the body. Now, what's the problem with this? How does it benefit the disciples to steal the body? Well, you say, well, they could steal the body and then convince everybody that you know he was resurrected. Okay, well, the challenges with this are multifold. First of all, um, these same disciples who have been so fearful for their lives that they've been in hiding, that they want no part of this, the same disciples that consist of Peter, their leader, who has been denying himself or denying Jesus three times, even to little servant girls. These are the men that now all of a sudden, after Jesus is dead, have the chutzpah to face up to Rome and to the Jewish leaders and steal a body? I don't think so. These guys, they didn't roll away stone to do this. They're still hiding. They're still fearful. And besides, we know that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. After he was resurrected, there was no stolen body. And there's a thought that maybe the Jews or the Romans stole the body. Why would they do this? This completely contradicts what they were trying to do, which is kill him. Why would they kill the man and then create doubt as to whether he was dead or not? It doesn't work that way. It wouldn't help their cause. There were no robbers. There is not a ransacked tomb because the, 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 the clothes were folded neatly there. There was no Roman or Jewish theft. Robbers who come in to steal bodies, to steal uh, artifacts that were buried with the, the dead, um, they just don't break into tombs and then fold the clothes and leave them behind. Jesus left on his own terms. We know that instead what the Scripture gives us is at least ten unique appearances of Jesus to people after he was resurrected, starting with Mary that we'll read about in just a second. So what does this mean for us now? Now it means that the perspective that death was the end is shattered. For those who have faith in Jesus Christ, those who believe in the sacrifice of the cross, this should not get old for us Christians. For those who believe in the sacrifice of the cross, those who believe that Jesus was buried in a tomb and that He rose again, the perspective of life is, is completely changed. It means that there is life everlasting for us. We weren't created for eternal damnation. We weren't created for death, but that we are now created for eternal paradise. We are created for a purpose that involves the life in, in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I can tell you this, as a man who is too familiar with funerals and death and grieving, there is a different perspective among those who are grieving the saved and those who are grieving the lost. And it has to do with your view of life that starts with the resurrection, does it not? If you've ever been, having just been in the home of those who are grieving without hope in eternal life, I can tell you that it is overwhelming. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. He tells the church in Thessalonica, they're wondering, you know, what's this going to be like? This, this resurrection of the dead, what, what's it going to look like? What does it mean in the meantime for those people who die in Christ? And, and Paul says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who died before Christ's return, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Here's the perspective change. When you come to life in Christ and when you fellowship and you worship 
and you celebrate with others who have life in Christ, we do not grieve their death as those who grieve with no hope. The, 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 the tomb, the empty tomb, changed that perspective forever. Um, just there with my son and Mindy and I, and standing there, and I, I, as the funeral director was taking the body out of the home, I leaned over to Ben and I said, and all these people are weeping and they're wondering if they're ever going to see him again. And they're, they're, they're making statements, you know, about now they're an angel. Or now and I turned to Ben and I said, this is really hard to see, but this is why we do what we do. This is my brother. And it just motivates me even more to communicate the message of life that can only come through Jesus Christ. It's God's desire that nobody go out that way. Nobody. So we have to be even more committed and serious to the Gospel of Christ. That's how our perspective changes. Now let's pick up with this story. John 20 and verse 11. What a, this is such a beautiful scene here too as well. It's full of, just chock full of hope. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. That should tell us something, right? The two apostles, they're gone. They're out of there. And yet Mary, her life is so intricately woven and dependent upon this man who had freed her from so much. And she's just no, nothing else left. All she can do is just sit there and weep. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Hmm. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've, take, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. So we know that with new life comes new perspective, but we also see here this, with new life comes new relationship. New relationship. Mary dawdles a while, um, probably out of her grief, and it pays off for her. The two apostles, they look in and what do they see? Linen cloths in an empty tomb. Mary dawdles a little while and in her grief she says, well, these two guys looked in, maybe I should look in too. And when she looks in, she's blessed. She sees two angels sitting there. The other guys didn't get that perspective. And the angels ask her the same question Jesus would ask just a second later. Why are you weeping? What's breaking your heart? But the hidden Jesus follows up with a question the angels didn't ask. Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So, this this is a significant question. This is the Mary that was one of the last to leave the cross. Remember, the cross was crowded by women. You had Marys all around the cross. His mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, they're there around the cross, and John. This is Mary, who we now see is the first to the grave. This is Mary, who had been set free from a life of demonic possession. She was set free in a way that probably nobody else could comprehend. All the, that close inner circle, the twelve and the women that had been following Jesus, Mary had received something 
on a much more dramatic scale maybe than any of the others were able to realize. Mary had been so um, enchained, enslaved by sin that her life was broken literally. She had seven demons possessing her. Jesus set her free of that. So, in this very amazing and beautiful moment, Jesus says, whom are you seeking? And in the midst of this conversation, he says to her one word. Did you catch what it was? It's her name. He says, Mary. And at that moment, everything became clear to her. The Lord Jesus called to her in the most personal, intimate way possible. He called her by name. He said, Mary. And all of a sudden, everything became clear to her. And in her excitement, she was no longer seeking the Lord. The Lord had called out to her, and now she found Him. And she cries out the only thing she can think of. She cries out, Rabboni, which is a very personal, intimate term, teacher. Teacher. Not rabbi, but rabboni. It's a much more personal way of referring to your teacher, your master. And like our Lord, He does the same thing to us. The new perspective. The new relationship. The Lord calls each one of us personally. Even standing on the floor of that stadium in St. Louis watching thousands of people pour out of their seats to the stadium floor to commit their lives to Christ. It was each individual heart that the Lord was calling at that moment to Himself. You have a story. I have a story. Rachel was referring to it earlier. It's our testimony. Me, it was as a young teenage boy, the Lord called me. I would imagine that some of you all have been called as adults. Some of you have been called out of the deep, dark sin of a six-year-old. Some of you have been called out of the deep, dark sin of maybe a 36-year-old. Maybe you'd seen some stuff and done some things that would make a six-year-old's whole body shake with the thought of. But it doesn't matter. Each place in our life, when the Lord sees fit, and as the Lord reaches into our life, He calls us personally and intimately where we're at, and He says, come. He says, come. Whom are you seeking? And he does this for Mary, and it pays off. But he says a very interesting thing to her that can be confusing, and I don't think it needs to be. He says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. That sounds anti-Jesus, doesn't it? We think, you know, is Jesus really Jesus would want Mary to just like hug him, cling on him, love him, not ever let him go. But Jesus is making an important kind of theological statement here that we need to understand. He's saying, don't cling to me because I've not yet ascended to my Father. The relationship is changing. The earthly Jesus that Mary was used to, the one that she had spent you know, multiple years traveling around Galilee and now Jerusalem, the one who had been so physically personal to her, had not yet quite finished the work. I mean, he had finished the work and then he had offered eternal life, but now he needed to ascend to the Father. And because of that ascension, he says this to her. He says, at the end of this text we just read, um, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and who? Your Father. To my God and your God. This isn't just about knowing the Jesus of Galilee. This isn't just about knowing her Rabboni. This is now about being intimately connected with the living God. That the God of heaven and earth was no longer a distant thing. But because Jesus had rose again and He was ascending to heaven, He's telling Mary the work, the completed work, is going to look like this. It's not going to be you clinging to a physical Jesus here in Jerusalem. It is going to look like 
the living God being so intimately engaged in your life as I have been for the past couple years. He is now not just my Father, but because I rose again, He is your Father. I mean, that's what Jesus did, did He not? He bridged the gap. He said, it's, 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 it's now about Larry having a living relationship, an intimate relationship with the Creator of all heaven and earth. So people who just limit Jesus and say, oh, he's a good teacher, he was a good guy, he was a wonderful moralist, that's missing this text completely. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we could have an intimate relationship with the Creator God. He would be our Father forever. That's how relationship changes. The born-again believer in Jesus Christ gets this. He's not just our teacher. He's not our Rabboni. He's not just our friend. He is our resurrected Lord who makes our way to the Father. Paul referred to this in 2 Corinthians 9, when he, or 2 Corinthians 1, verses 9 to 10. He said, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope and He will deliver us again. We have the promise of a resurrected life. So, what does this new life look like? It looks like uh, a new life with a new perspective. It looks like uh, a new life with a new relationship with our Heavenly Father. But this new life also comes with another component, and it's point three. With new life comes new purpose. New purpose. Let me read it to you. The first place we see new purpose is in chapter 20. 19 to 23. Disciples, maybe out of fear, maybe out of ignorance, just not knowing what to do. They're hanging out in a probably a very private, secluded room where they can't be found. And it says in verse 19, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. Now here's the new purpose. As the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Appearing in this amazing fashion to his disciples, he says to them that just as the Father has sent me, what was Jesus' mission? To seek and save the lost. I'm sending you. I'm sending you, Jackie. I'm sending you, Amanda. I'm sending you, John. Your mission is this. You've received life. Your perspective has changed. You are now intimate with the Heavenly Father. Now your job is to go and seek and save the lost through my work, through my power, through my blood. Make disciples. This is the new purpose. It's not to hang out here on Sunday mornings. It's not to influence political elections. Our purpose is not to, I hate to say it, but simply fund orphanages in remote countries. It's, we're selling ourselves short if that's what we think we exist for, if that's what our purpose is. Our purpose is to make disciples. From the gal who comes to your table when you pay your bill at a restaurant, you engage in a conversation. The purpose of making disciples. Maybe you're at work. Maybe you're like Tim and you sit at a bank desk. Everybody who sits down is an opportunity to make disciples. Maybe you're a school teacher. Maybe you're a retiree. And you hang out in the garden with a bunch of other people um, during the day in the summertime, enjoying your retirement. Everybody you come across is an opportunity to make 
disciples. That's what we exist for. That's our purpose. I think of the circles. I was at a discipleship conference on Monday, and we were talking about this. There's the big circle of, of, of worship. You know, and, and unfortunately, there's a group of people that that's just kind of where their understanding of Christianity is, and, and it stops there. There's the big circle. But God's desire is that we, we move into a smaller circle. Think of it as a medium-sized circle. This is where we, we do life in a group that's smaller in context, where more intimate relationships can be built, where we can uh, invest in one another uh, on a medium-sized scale. You see this, so the larger circle, think of the, um, uh, think of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaching to large groups of people coming together for a common purpose. But then the medium circle, you know, you think of Jesus, who did he invest in? Well, he had, he had 12 apostles, and even of those 12 apostles, how many did he pour himself into on a one-on-one sort of scale? Well, scripturally speaking, we really know of only like three. Peter, James, and John. They were the inner. So there's even a smaller circle, the medium-sized circle. But think of the smaller circle. This is... This is the people in our life where we just have the one-on-one. And it's somebody maybe that you've been investing in, you're making disciple of over the course of uh, weeks, months, years to do this sort of stuff. We have a purpose to make disciples. And that purpose is not being fulfilled if, if this Sunday morning thing is all we do. This is followed up by a very kind of out-of-place, weird sort of thing. It says that Jesus then breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This isn't Pentecost. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Not in a, a mass form. So it's tough to say if this was simply a visible demonstration of what would happen or a small partial impartation of the Holy Spirit. But with the size of Pentecost looming very soon, it's safe to say that I think this was sort of a foreshadowing. Jesus is saying, I, I'm sending you to go and make disciples. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then He breathes and He says, receive my Holy Spirit. As you do this, you're going to re- when you go to do this, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do it. The Holy Spirit is, is God's assurance that we can do these things. The Holy Spirit is the, is the power in which we do these things. It's the new power for the new purpose. We don't enter into this new purpose without power. But a lot of times we think we won't enter into new, the new purpose because we think we don't have the power. I love that just this morning... Um, just from a personal perspective, if I could share just a second, um, we sang that song, and, and one of the songs referred to the fact of throwing the, the, the mountain that stands in our way into the sea. Now, where I'm going, the town that I'm moving to is on the sea. And I see all the things that seem to be obstacles, all the things that I could focus like a laser on that would make me think that I shouldn't do this, it's going to be a failure, it's going to be too hard, all the obstacles that are insurmountable. But in my mind at that moment, I had this image of all those things being picked up and thrown into the sea. And the Lord saying, you have the power in me to do whatever I require of you to do. As does this church that's full, and every church that's full of believers who have that perspective of new life in Christ. We don't go, we don't do, because we don't think we have the power. Jesus assured his disciples, don't worry about the power, I got that taken care of. Just go. In Acts 1.8, remember, right before he ascended, he reminded them of this again. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Love that. I mean, it can't be any simpler than that. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You're going to have all the power you need. Now just go and be my witnesses. This church isn't going to grow if all we worry about is this big circle. 
The church is going to grow if we focus on going, if we focus on relating, if we focus on disciple-making, and we go in His power. Now let me read the last part of this new purpose. It's in the next chapter, 21. Remember Peter? Denied him three times. Peter playing duck and hide the Jews and the Romans. And eventually Peter gets to the point where he's probably wrestling a crisis of identity. Who am I now? I've given three years to this man. What am I going to do? I guess I'll do what I always do. I'll go fish. I'll go fish. And all of a sudden, he's out fishing, and Jesus shows up on the shoreline. And uh, Jesus has breakfast ready for them. And that's where we pick up in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. How awful and embarrassing this must be to Peter. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, to, he said um, Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Appearing to Peter here um, is maybe one of the most significant moments post-resurrection because it tells us a lot about Peter's purpose. It tells us a lot about our purpose. Appearing to Peter, he tells him to feed his lambs. In one sense, he's, he's restoring Peter. Three times Peter denied him. Three times Jesus asked him if he loved him. Three times he gave Peter his new mission, his purpose. This is what Jesus does. Jesus takes broken, repentant people and He sets them on a mission bigger than themselves. Jesus takes a nobody or Jesus takes a somebody. But in every case, Jesus takes a failure in the eyes of God, somebody who's broken and repentant of those failures, those sins, And He gives them a mission, a purpose that's bigger than themselves. It truly is, if you devote on this at all this week, think about this. What right do you have to do anything in God's name? What right would I have to stand before somebody and lead them into a relationship with Christ? What right would I have as a member of Christ's church, to hold the keys to eternal life, what Jesus says His church does. What right do I have to stand before another man and read the very words of life to them? The very words of God. And yet, Jesus is pleased to take failures, rejections, sinners, and set them on a path of loving purpose. This text is a sermon and a half by itself, this, this restoration of Peter. But let me just take, make some connections here as we gear down towards the end. In a very specific way, this is a, a, a pastoral commissioning of Peter. 
But in a less specific way, it's the discipling ministry pertinent to all of us as followers of Christ. It was As a pastor, it was a, a very cool moment for me to be on the Sea of Galilee, on that beach, that place where Peter was restored by Christ. Because you keep coming back to these three commissioning words, the phrases of, of Jesus, you know. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Here's the discipling ministry of it for all of us. First of all, this ministry is always tied to the love of Christ. The ministry that we do has to be tied to the love that Christ has for us. It doesn't operate out of guilt. We don't do what we do because of guilt, do we? We don't do what we do out of some sort of warped duty. We don't do it out of a legalistic sense. We serve Christ because Christ first loved us. So Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Great, feed my sheep. The first two questions, Jesus says to Peter, do you agapeo me? It's it's the Greek word, um, agape, you've, you've been around the church, I'm sure you've heard it referred to. It's one specific type of love that's mentioned in the New Testament. Agape love is this love that is sacrificial. It's a very divine God kind of love. It's loving people who are unlovable. It's loving without strings attached, without conditions connected. Jesus says to him, do you love me? Great. Agapeo, my sheep. I mean, that's darn near impossible, isn't it? I mean, I know what circles you run in, but the circles I run in, the people I hang out with look a lot like me, which is pretty unlovable. Filthy, they bring a lot of baggage, they smell awful, and they don't like you very much. They even tend to bite. Yet Jesus says, I need you to agapeo these people. It's not about them, their baggage, their conditions, their circumstances. It's not about their attitude towards you. They could hate you. They could think the worst things about you. I just need you to love them. I need you to love them the way I love you, the way you love me. Do you agapeo me? It's... Here's another thing to remember about um, agape love. It's a choice. It's a matter of will. You can't do it without Christ's love first, but to agapeo somebody means that you actually have to work at it. And if you've ever tried to love an unlovable person, if you've ever tried to love an EGR, an extra grace required person, you know what I'm talking about you're going to get that 19th text message. You're going to get that 25th phone call that day, and you are going to have to make a conscious decision to say, Christ loved me this way. I must love in return this way. The third time, though, it changes the word. And this is where the whole series of sermons could come in. But he says to Peter, first he says, do you agapeo me? Do you agapeo me? And then he changes it. He says, do you phileo me? Phileo. It comes from the Greek word Philadelphia. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's not a divine, necessarily unconditional kind of love. It's a brotherly, intimate love. It's a relational love. And we could talk a long time about why Jesus chose to change the word here. But he's clearly communicating a message to Peter to say, even if you love me with just that affectionate, intimate, warm kind of love, even if you're, you're still doubting Peter, if you're doubting that you're capable of, un, of loving me in an agapeo way, even if you're only at the place where you love me with an intimate, brotherly affection, I still need you to feed my sheep. John says in 
his later epistle, 1 John 4, to the church. He tells them this. He says, Brother, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. If this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Simply put, what John is saying here is what Jesus is telling Peter. Love starts with God. God loved us first. God asked the question of us, do you love me? If you say, if your response to that is yes, then it is absolutely manifested in the love that you have towards others. It's, it's, a, it's a given. If God loved you, and you've responded to that love in kind, then your life is going to look like love for one another. So the ministry is tied to the love of Christ, but here's the other part. That ministry, God's ministry, always involves people. Always involves people. And you think to yourself, well, duh, of course. You'd be surprised how many Christians try and travel through this journey with Christ and have as limited responsibility, contact, and connection with people as they possibly can. They think that they can just get through life and not deeply invest in others, not pour out into others. A life, Jesus said, you know, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. A life without people is not an effective ministry. This statement for Peter may be kind of have a kind of an apostolic slant, but its truth applies to us all. It comes down to basic discipleship. If we say that we're going in the name of Christ, if we say that we're disciple-makers, there must be people on the other end of that. Some people will try and have Jesus in their life and avoid people altogether. I once had a guy uh, years ago, and I can remember we were sitting in one of the Sunday school classrooms at my previous church, and um, he had come with a friend, and it was his first time there in a while, and he's very unsure of this church thing. And I asked him, I went through the... The, um, the gospel with him, and he said, yes, I've committed my life to Christ. I just don't like the church. That's what he said. He said, my church, I can get everything I need from the 700 Club and listening to sermons on the radio. And I don't have to have anything to do with people. And he said, my faith is my matter. It has nothing to do with anybody else. That's not a faith at all. See, some people try and have Jesus and avoid depth with people. You know, this is a, this this is Southern Baptists are the best at that. Hey, good morning. How you doing? Fine. How's life? Great. And they they stay here in the big circle, and they never allow their life to get smaller and smaller. They never go deeper and deeper. Imagine a, a discipling relationship where a more mature Christian had the freedom to sit down with a less mature Christian and say, what's your giving to the church look like? Whoa. We, don't, we disciple in a lot of ways. I'll teach you how to read the Bible. I'll pray for you, but you know some of that tough stuff. We don't need to go there. 
Tell me about what's your relationship look like with your ex-wife? Are you are you able to speak to her in a Christ-like manner? Do your children still see you treating her as Christ would treat her? You may not be married anymore, but now you're a believer in Christ. What are you doing in that relationship? Do we go to those places? Some people will have Jesus and they'll just see it as an opportunity to tire, to get even dirtier, and to invest even more and go deeper so that they can feed and tend His sheep. Those are the people we need to be. You ever hung out with sheep? They're ugly. I mean, ugly from an aesthetic standpoint. They smell. They require a lot of maintenance. They're completely dependent. They bite. They are uh, sometimes annoying. And they don't always operate according to your plan. And yet Jesus chose here to reinstate Peter by asking him to love us in this way. Somebody reached into your life at some point in time and they saw a dirty, filthy, useless sheep or a lamb. Sheep are more mature, lambs are younger. They both require tending and feeding. You never fully arrive, do you? But somebody reached into your life, and maybe they're, hopefully they still are. There comes a point in time where you have to stop being a taker, and you have to start being a tender. Get it? We are not designed to simply be Christian takers. We are commissioned to be tenders, to be feeders. So what does your life look like? What does this new life in Christ look like for you? See, the answer to the first question, what does your life look like? Everybody has life. For some people, uh, doesn't look anything like Jesus, and it's not tied to His love for them at all. They've never looked at the cross and said, I am a sheep. I am flawed, marred, sinful. I have nothing that, to offer the Lord. But I believe that You died for me. That's when you commit to Him at that point in time, you say, I accept the sacrifice of the cross, that's when your life gets real. That's when Christ comes and He, he, he remakes you from the inside out. And He gives you the promise of eternal life. But for some of us who are believers, we need to ask the hard question to say, okay, so what does our new life in Christ look like? What's our perspective? What's our purpose? Now, how are we operating in this thing called life? How are we doing at that? Who's that one-on-one person that I've been investing in, that I've been pouring into? What sort of small group am I involved in where I can actually develop some of those intimate relationships? Or is this just me here in the big circle? Because that's not what Jesus was dying for. That's not the kind of church that he was, he was desiring, and that's not the kind of disciple-makers that he was shooting for. Where are you in that? I'm going to pray this morning that God would, through His love for us, empower us to a deeper level of love for one another and for the lost. And we become better tenders and feeders of sheep.